This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Hey, everyone. So I have a request. If you value this show, if you value the stories, the lessons, the wisdom and inspiration we bring to you, If you think of me as your friend, which I am, because even though millions of you are listening, I'm actually talking just to you right now. I need you to be there for me as well. And you can do that by supporting what I do and buying my book, How I Built This. It is just out now and available everywhere. And it doesn't cost more than a few cups of coffee. And it's filled with wisdom and stories and ideas that will have you feeling inspired and fired up to take on the world. So please, if you love this show and what we do for you, do us one back and pick up How I Built This wherever books are sold. Okay, on to today's show. And just so you know, our team has been working frantically to crank out a new episode each week for most of this year. But each episode we make takes months to produce, from the huge amount of research we do, to the fact-checking, to the very long interview, to the editing, and then more editing, and even more fact-checking, and then more editing, and then scoring the episode with original music. It takes a lot to produce a single Monday episode of How I Built This. So this week, we're taking a break and bringing you one of our very favorites from the archive. The story of Method Cleaning Products, a multi-million dollar company that came to be because two old friends just happened to run into each other on a cross-country flight. Hope you enjoy. I read at one point, Eric, that to prove that this really was non-toxic, you actually drank it. Yeah. So I was in London. You know, I love the British press. They're so skeptical. And she said, is it you know, safe enough to drink. I was like, sure. So we both took a shot at the toilet bowl cleaner. Okay. And then I immediately uh, text Adam. Finally, he got back to me. I was like, hey, <laughs> just drank the toilet bowl cleaner. I'm going to be okay, right? From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how two friends in their mid-20s mixed up some household ingredients to make soap and detergent, and then took on and eventually outmaneuvered some of the biggest companies in the world. If you were looking to start a business in the late 1990s, you probably didn't have to spend a lot of time convincing friends and family that it was a good time to go into tech. This was the height of the dot-com bubble, and it seemed like the future was literally being written by companies like Google and Yahoo and eBay and Amazon. So it can be kind of hard to imagine why two 20-somethings who lived in San Francisco in the 1990s would survey this promising landscape and say, you know what the world really needs right now? Soap. Soap that will do a good job cleaning your kitchen counter or your toilet, but that won't destroy the planet in the process. And that is exactly what Adam Lowry and Eric Ryan set out to sell in 2000, the very year the dot-com bubble burst. 
And the company they founded, Method, with its sleek bottles and products smelling like cucumber or bamboo, it actually went on to compete with some of the biggest soap companies in the world. But before they went into business together, Adam and Eric were actually childhood friends. They met when they were kids, maybe 12 or 13 years old, because they were both super into sailing. And both of their families worked in the auto industry, which Adam says was pretty much what everyone did where they grew up, in Gross Point, Michigan. Almost everyone that I can remember, their families were involved. And I think, Eric, your family... Yeah, so my my great-grandfather dropped out of pharmacy school and moved to Detroit to work for Henry for $5 a day. And then ultimately... Henry, Henry Ford. Yeah. We have, uh, I have some Ford stock that was bought when Henry was still running the company by my, wow. my great-grandfather. And then my great-grandfather and grandfather together started a machine and stamping. If you ever see like eight mile, those giant presses that come down. So they would make a lot of the parts that went on the automobiles. And so I kind of grew up in the shadows of my great-grandfather and grandfather being these entrepreneurs who created something from nothing. Adam and Eric both went off to college. This was in the early 90s. Adam went to the West Coast. He studied chemical engineering at Stanford. And Eric went to the East Coast and studied business at the University of Rhode Island. Both of them were actually recruited by the university's sailing teams. They were serious sailors. And to be clear, in college, Adam and Eric didn't really keep in touch. They were the kind of friends who were happy to hang out and catch up just whenever they were back in Michigan. So after graduating, Adam stayed in the Bay Area to work for the Carnegie Institute of Science. He was doing research on climate change. And Eric got a job in advertising. And eventually, he made his way out to San Francisco as well. And shortly after that, they both just happened to run into each other on a flight. I think it was Thanksgiving, if I'm not mistaken, one year, maybe 97, 98. I walk onto the plane, I see Eric, and I didn't know that he was living in San Francisco. He'd, he'd only moved there a couple weeks a, ago, a couple like weeks early. prior. Right. And so there was an open seat. I ended up sitting next to him on the plane. We, for five hours, got all caught up. It turned out we were living on the exact same block, just out of pure coincidence. And I was living in a flat with four other guys from Stanford. And Eric was living by himself in a one-bedroom. And so when one of those guys rotated out, we invited Eric to move into the apartment, and then we were roommates. This is when you could actually live in San Francisco for a reasonably low amount of rent. I paid $600 a month in rent. Oh, my God. This is 1997, 98. Amazing. So you move into this group house doing what you do in your early 20s or whatever, and, and the house was just like a six guys and a presumably not super clean. It was exactly as clean as you would expect it to be. Got it. All right. <laughs> and, and I mean, did either of you at that time in your minds, were either of you thinking business or were you just kind of grinding away doing your day-to-day jobs? I mean, for me personally, I, I knew since the third grade I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was the annoying neighborhood kid who was constantly selling buttons or anything else I could. So I just – I always knew I wanted to start a company and I loved – I fell in love with advertising and branding. But – I knew it's pretty uncommon as an entrepreneur, your first company will be successful. So I kind of wanted to build a little bit of a safety net of a career, but I was constantly noodling on ideas. Uh, For me personally, just coming up with the right one that I would eventually take a leap for. Adam? 
For me, you know, the journey to entrepreneurship was less predestined. Mm -hmm. My parents are both entrepreneurs. They started their business in 1981. What's their business? Uh, it's an automotive sales rep business, um, representing parts suppliers in the automotive industry. Right. But um, when I was six, seven years old, the mom's making chili for the week for myself and my older brother and my older sister. and. I watched them build the business and do it in a way that was much higher risk um, than the risk that Eric and I eventually took. Because you were so young. We were young. We didn't have families. We didn't have mortgages and any of that. So while Eric kind of always knew I'm going entrepreneurs as soon as I can, for me, I'm motivated by creating some sort of good change in the world. And I'm a big believer in that you don't need to figure out what you need to do with your life. You just need to figure out what you want to do next. So what were you noticing in 1999 that eventually would lead to cleaning products? What was going on around you? I was working on a project for Colgate, so I was spending a lot of time in the grocery store. And I just started looking at the cleaning aisle and saw that it was such a big category, but a sea of sameness. Like everything looked and smelled the same the brands were pretty dated. And so that was kind of the clue of dig here. Uh, but, I mean, you're 25. Now, I get you're working <laughs> on an ad campaign for Colgate. So that makes sense. You start to get some exposure to that industry. But, like, it could have been anything. I mean, it could have been chewing gum. Like, you could have – what was it that that made you think, wait a minute, cleaning supplies? Well, we're really like, – I think with any idea, you, you start off from this – absolute place of insecurity. Like when I mentioned this to my mom, she's like, I've never seen you make your bed. Are you sure you're the right person to start a cleaning products business? So I hid the products underneath my bed because I didn't, it's pretty dorky. I didn't want anybody to know I was even thinking about this category. And Adam and I were both back in Michigan and we were driving up north early morning to go skiing and being close friends. I felt like Adam was somebody I could share an idea with. This is the winter of 99, presumably, mm -hmm. if you're going skiing. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know there was skiing in Michigan, but keep going. <laughs> it is technically it's skiing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. And I mentioned that, hey, I think there may be an opportunity in this space. And I remember Adam looks over at me as he's driving and goes, you know, I have a degree in chemical engineering. <laughs> and it's like, that would be useful. <laughs> Uh, and then we just, it was sort of one thing leading to another that, and I said, well, you know, not only are these products really ugly, but did you know they're super toxic as well, right? Yeah. And that was uh, kind of where one idea gets added to another and it kind of goes from there. But I do, the one point I remember is we got there to go skiing and we went up the first chairlift and we did a couple runs and we realized we were more excited to go work on this idea than we were to keep skiing. So, so paint the picture for, like, cleaning supplies and products in 99. Like, if I'm going into Safeway in 1999, I'm going to get 409. I'm going to get, um, Mr. you know, Clean. Mr. Clean, right? Mm -hmm. Really strong sense. There was kind of like, you know, if your eyes weren't watering, it, it means it wasn't clean. And it was, it was a pretty toxic category. And to Adam's point, that was the thing that he brought that really opened my eyes. It's like... You mean like you actually pollute when you clean and you use poison to make your home healthier? And at this point, Adam, and this is like the, the winter of 1999, were you still working at the Carnegie Institute? I stepped down from Carnegie. You just quit? I, I did. There is an important detail here. Um, I quit my job in September 
And in October was the Olympic trials for the 2000 Olympics. And you wanted in to sailing. and you wanted to go. Yeah, and uh, and I had been training uh, with the U.S. sailing team. I was on the U.S. sailing team for seven years. We did not win the Olympic trials. We got third in the Olympic trials, and so that period of time for a couple of months there, I had just finished the Olympic trials. I was doing a bunch of interviews with product design firms and looking uh, for a job, engineering firms. Yeah, in the Bay Area. So, so right then and there at that moment, you both. I mean, it was almost a perfect storm for you, Adam, because you were kind of in this transition phase. Eric, you were work, still working at the ad agency, which actually was giving you this incredible experience. It was like sort of opening your eyes to this entire world that you hadn't been exposed to, right? Yeah, really understanding like understanding consumers. And this was really kind of driven by, so you go back to 1999, IKEA was just arriving in America. Yeah. Home and garden television was just taking off. So it was a time where people were starting to think more about their homes as a reflection of themselves. And so the thought was, well, what if we design these products so they were like pieces of decor. And hey, if a spray cleaner was beautiful enough to leave on the counter versus hidden underneath the, the sink, out of sight, out of mind, you might actually use it more. And I love the phrase, like, there's no such thing as low-interest categories, just low-interest brands. So our thought was, how do we take boring cleaning and not make it boring? So what happened after that Christmas trip to Michigan? You, you come back to San Francisco and you do what? So... You know, I was in the middle of a job search and I said, hey, you know, I'm going to look for some jobs, but I'm going to start doing some research and trying to figure out these categories and do some of the digging that Eric had a full-time job at his ad firm and yeah. didn't have a ton of time to do. And I said, I'll, I'll start to do this. And so I actually at one point had a desk in Eric's bedroom <laughs> where I would work on some of this stuff while I was kind of continuing my job search. And we were writing the business plan together. I was doing a lot of that research, and then at night we kind of put the pieces together. So you um, already decide, let's make a go at this. Well, it's it was really, I think, you know, the hardest thing with starting a company is we are really insecure about this idea. Well, you're 25. I mean, sure. <laughs> 20, 25, and we're going to take on not only some of the largest multinationals, but the world's first multinationals in the form of Procter and Unilever, who have a 150-year head start. And have really, you know, owned distribution. But was that your vision in 1999 or did you just think, let's just make this and see who buys it? No, we, I mean, we said from the beginning, like, go big or go home. Yeah, go big or We go want home. to disrupt an industry. But our, we, we didn't feel very secure getting there. So one of the first things we did was we created what we call the concept book. And so we brought to life the idea, gave it to the 20 smartest people we knew and ask them, shoot holes in this. And these were what, professors, friends, family? Oh, God, everything from, you know, people who actually found some former Clorox employees, uh, lawyers, uh, people from a finance background, advertising, just like, tell us why it's going to fail. And nobody could come back with a reason other than, if it's so good, why has nobody done this before? Yeah, or they'd say, the reason it's going to fail is because they're big and you're small, which we didn't, that's not a reason. So let me understand this. This is still the before the dot-com crash, okay? This is the dot-com. right on top of it. <laughs> but, that was in April. But, I remember it well. <laughs> but this is a time when most people your age at that time were moving to this area to get involved in a tech company. Did anybody say, um, so? What are you doing? Like, oh, my God. We Everybody had, said like, that. Like, why aren't you going into tech? <laughs> Everybody said that. Uh, right? 
We had friends who are raising $40 million on 40-page business plans and bragging about a million dollar per page for a raise or doing these lavish launch parties, which seems so ridiculous now to spend funds on a launch party. But yeah, this was San Francisco at the turn of the century, and money was being thrown around in tech. And here we were showing up, pitching soap, an idea that was hot 120 years ago. So when do you actually mix stuff together and get it, get like a, was it hand soap? Was it dish soap? Was it cleaner? What what was the first thing that you decided to work on? So yes, right around that time, sort of mid 2000, it was mostly me mixing those things. Like what out were of, you mixing? Well, you can make cleaning products out of very standard things that you can buy in the grocery store. Like you water. Know, things like, in, yeah, of course, water, vinegar, baking soda, um, these are relatively simple chemicals that don't require a professional lab in order to, to mix them together. Yeah. And the best part is I came home one day and Adam was uh, mixing things in beer pitchers, which I'm like, we're going to kill one of our roommates here. <laughs> Luckily, this stuff's non-toxic. What, what, what do you remember mixing? Well, I, I think there's different soaps and different detergents. You know, you can make soap from – basically a base and an oil, so a vegetable oil and a base. You bring those together to make a soap. Um, for solvency, you can use things like vinegar or um, some of the acids that are in, present in things like orange juice, very common, everyday, mild chemicals that you formulate in different ways to achieve a certain cleaning function. And you mentioned you know, dish soaps, hard surface cleaners, that kind of thing. Um, and were you – like I'm trying to imagine, were you like in your room or in the kitchen of this group house like with a kitchen. bucket like pouring in? Like, imagine sort of 16-ounce jars maybe of plastic or glass containers of orange oils and baking soda and, and then I would just experiment. I would try different formulations and I would make experiments the way that a scientist does so that you – you know, you kind of have a control and, and, and then an experiment and you, you know, it was just an iterative process to getting to something that worked really well. So, Eric, while Adam was sort of looking into the category and looking at potential ingredients and stuff, what were, what were you doing? So our plan was to create our first four products, which were the surface cleaners, and get them in the local stores. So Adam was working on basically doing everything in the bottle, and I was doing everything kind of around the bottle. And this joke was style and substance. Um, and so what I started doing was we, we didn't have a lot of you know money to do custom tooling. And so I started looking for stock bottles, couldn't find anything I, I really liked. So I had this camping water bottle from Norway that I had found, just a really simple kind of bullet design with these nice, elegant shoulders. It, had, it was very utilitarian, but at the same time would look almost like a vase sitting in uh, someone's home. So we used that as the basis for the first bottle. And, and how are you paying for the, the cleaning, you know, the oils and all this stuff? I guess it wasn't that expensive, right? No, it wasn't very expensive, but out of pocket. We paid, we ran the business out of pocket for about two years. How much money did you have at the beginning? To, to How much money did each of you put in? Uh, we each put in $45,000. And that was all the money each of you had? Yeah, my grandfather had passed away and left me with that money. And so uh, we, we put it right into Method. And you split it 50-50 at the beginning? Yep. Yep. Put it down on paper. And you called it Method? At that time, yeah. We yeah, had, I think we had the name by then. We wanted a name that represented a technique, a new approach to doing things. And it, Adam and I were both brushing our teeth at the same time. 
Sounds very weird. Well, you lived in the group house. I mean, you probably had one or two bathrooms, yeah. right? B- yeah, basically one. <laughs> <laughs> Adam looks over and goes, how about Method? I'm like, that's it. Ma- how did you come up with that name? I don't know. I just thought of it. You, you mentioned you had these bottles that you really liked. Were you, were you just buying these off the shelf somewhere? No, we uh, we did. I mean, design was so important. A big chunk of the, the dollars we had went into tooling. We just couldn't afford the actual design, but tooling. And you designed the bottle? No, we basically uh, took inspiration from this bottle I found in Europe. And, and then had a supplier kind of do the engineering of it. Yeah. Uh, and then build the bottle molds, which ate up most of the investment. Most that, of that 90000 yeah. bucks. Yep. And then we had the bottles and we were making product at home with like funnels and paper towels right you were filling the bottles yourselves mm-hmm. you were bringing them to your apartment with a funnel and just pouring it in and closing it up yep okay and we wanted we wanted to feel very different than everything else out there but also to really show it was you know safe to be around you think about when most people would clean they would put on that you know that old team building exercise sweatshirt from from 1998 and the rubber gloves because you don't want the stuff touching your skin. So our first labels were very different. They actually showed people on the front of it. And of course, we didn't have any money. So we would go to Home Depot and buy a sink and photograph Adam holding the sink, (laughs) promptly return the sink to get our money back. (laughs) Wow. Um, If you fast forward to late February of 2001, by now, Eric and I have product prototypes and we were taking these prototypes around, walking into grocery stores unannounced and cornering the store manager and trying to get them to buy our product. And so we got a grocery store um, at the end of February to say, yeah. 2001. Yeah, it was actually February 28th, 2001. So we had bothered this store manager enough that he said, fine, guys, I'm going to give you space, but you have to get the product here today. Uh, this was in Burlingame in uh, sort of the mid-peninsula of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. What's the store called? Molly Stones. Yeah. So essentially what we need to do is get a proof of concept. So we decided the first step was to try to get into all the independent grocery stores in the Bay Area. These are the places where that manager can make the buying decision. So you got to show up at 6 a.m. This guy's always really grumpy. And I think essentially they just agree to take your product because they know you're going to keep coming back until they say yes. But were you going to the store in Burlingame? I mean, you went there multiple times? Mm-hmm. And and the first time you went there, the manager was like, I'm not interested? I mean, imagine doing this at 6 o'clock in the morning with a with a store manager. They are not interested. First of all, store managers don't take sales calls, right? So that was just – that's not how you get a product in grocery stores. No. But it was the only way we knew how. So uh, they weren't used to seeing that. And so Wait, there was a lot you of – You drove up to the store in Burlingame and you – Support for How I Built This comes from 3M – from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness, the research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio tequila, 40% alcohol by volume. 
copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. And on our new podcast, Louder Than a Riot, we trace the collision of rhyme and punishment in America. We were hunted by police. We were literally physically hunted. You'd be standing on the corner, drug squad pull up, everybody will run. New from NPR Music. Listen to Louder Than a Riot. And just one more thing. The How I Built This book is now available. It's a great read and a great gift for anyone looking for ideas, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement to have the courage to put out an idea into the world. It's filled with a ton of stories you haven't heard and how some of the greatest entrepreneurs you know and respect started out at the very bottom. Check out How I Built This, the book, available wherever you buy your books. And please, if you support what I do on this show, you can show that support by picking up How I Built This, the book. And thanks. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So it's 2001, and Adam and Eric get the first method cleaning products into a grocery store in the Bay Area. And pretty quickly, they realize that they couldn't just make all this stuff in the kitchen of their San Francisco group house. So they start to think about building a supply chain to make more of the product. But meanwhile, day in, day out, they're showing up at different stores trying to convince customers to try out Method Soap. We didn't have marketing dollars, so what we would do, we would offer demos. So we did that. And, of course, we didn't have anybody to do a demo, so that would be would be me. You standing, would go there, what, into the grocery store and, like... You set up a table, and I was wearing a lab coat, which is comical to look back years later. And it's kind of funny. I look at these photos, and I was standing in the wine aisle. And I think I just realized that people shopping for wine were way more interesting to talk to than people shopping for cleaning products. But... We were really big believers that the packaging would have to be the primary marketing vehicle. And you would see it on shelf because of the design. You would buy it because of the unique fragrances. You'd get home, find out it works, turn the bottle over, and realize it's good for you and good for the planet. And that would start to create a following. And if you talk to most Americans at that time, they would say green doesn't clean. The only way we are going to make this work is we had to get the mainstream into a green product. And we thought a lot of it as it's a Trojan horse for good. We had to put our green credentials on the back of the bottle and almost kind of hide them. So after you got into Molly Stone's, what was the next step? How did you get into the next store? Same process? Talk to the manager and... The the first step was that I believe there were 10 Molly Stone's at that time. There's, I think, more than that now. Then there were other similar chains of premium, high-end, more gourmet-focused uh, grocery stores that we went to in the Bay Area. But what we did, we, we built up these 30 stores, and we called it our paper route. So every morning, we'd take turns driving to each store, counting how many you sold, replenishing it, writing up an invoice. And it was a way for us to really understand the grocery business. And I think the big moment of truth came through when, you know, we didn't have a customer service number, so my cell phone was on the back of, of every bottle. And I remember getting this first call from this person who just wanted to 
call to say how much they loved our cucumber bathroom cleaner. And of course, I thought it was a friend just playing a joke on us. But these calls started coming, and we realized like we really struck a bit of an emotional chord in a category that traditionally is so low interest and so boring. And it's just 24-7, you guys are just working all the time on this? Yeah, I mean, the challenge is, you know, with any startup, but particularly in this space, momentum is your friend. And then to raise capital, you need to show momentum. So, yeah, you always felt this race against the clock to grow as fast as possible. And I guess pretty soon into this thing, in 2001, it becomes clear that you've got to raise money. You've got mm-hmm. to get – because 90000 bucks is only going to take you so far. Mm-hmm. So how did you – what was the next step? How did you get the money? Friends and family. Oh, wow. That was a saga. <laughs> that was a saga. I mean, it, we're constantly running out of cash. And so we were getting five grand, 10 grand here from every friend, family, person that would give us money and did that for about almost two years to run the business. And all told, it was maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars that we got that way before we were able to raise our first professional money. There are people who believe in you more than they necessarily believe in your idea. And I also found it so motivating because it's one thing like for Adam and I to, you know, lose our own money or fail. But when you're taking money from people you really care about, our roommates, you know, grandma, my, our my siblings, parents. parents, you don't want to let them down. And I always encourage entrepreneurs to take money from family because I think it's the best motivation to ensure that no matter how hard things get, you're going to find a path forward. Yeah. So you uh, are you know, funding this any way you can. At what point are you able to – or what point do you decide, hey, we got to go to like real money people, big money people and, and get an infusion of real investment? Well, yes. we decided that really early on, but it took a long time to get it done. So it was probably, I mean, even by mid-2000, we knew we were going to need to get capital to run the business, but it took another year at least before we were able to get a professional investor to, to sign on the bottom line. Yeah. How much did you raise in, in that round? You know, the first round was a million dollars. And it was from one investor for this mm-hmm. one firm? It's one investor, and we were scheduled to sign the term sheet on what turned out to be September 11th. Wow. And so in the months that followed, we were stalled because, of course, nobody was doing deals with the uncertainty in the world, particularly in a premium-priced cleaning product. Mm -hmm. And I remember we finally closed in November, and you always have a closing dinner when you raise capital. And we went around the room to pay the bill afterwards. And between Adam and I, none of our credit cards worked. And luckily, we knew the person who owned the restaurant, and we asked them if we could pay him next week after we closed. And Because we had run out of money. And yeah. So all of the business, you know, we, we had inventory and orders and stuff like that, and all of that was on credit cards. You were just maxing not, them out. Yeah, just maxing them out on the faith that we would ultimately get this investment. Um, that was a scary time for both of us. By the way, what was your your pitch to these investors? Like, what did you think convinced them to, to give you their money? I mean, a big part of our pitch was showing what we had proven locally and regionally and the argument that we were going to go get Target next and that we needed capital to be able to close Target and start to scale nationally. But how did you even – how could you even say that? Were you talking to Target before you had any money to make this product? No, not at all because we wanted to be able to get the capital. But what we started doing is we were working with Karen Rashid, who is a very famous industrial designer. 
and we wanted to create a line of products working with Karam that would make a real statement in the marketplace. Just to pause for a second, Karam Rashid is like a huge industrial designer. Like he's made products for, he's designed Pepsi bottles and iconic furniture and like perfume bottles. Like you guys are in your mid-20s. Like how did you connect with this guy and why would he even answer your call? We were huge believers in the power of design and great industrial design. So we put a list together of the top industrial designers, and Karen was at the top of that list. Yeah. So I figured we'd just work down the list until we finally got somebody to agree to work with us. And I shot Karen an email. You just went to, like, Google and typed in his name and Looked found his— the studio, shot an email cold to him. Okay. And said, you know, here's our pitch. We want to— work with you to redesign the dish soap, an object that sits across every sink in the landscape of America. Will you work with us? And he wrote back within 20 minutes and said, yes. Wow. I do remember, like, I think when he first met us for the briefing, he he said to Josh Handy, who we work with at the time, he's like, uh, maybe try to get some of the payment up front. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how did you, how are you even going to afford to pay him? Yeah, we were able to convince him to do it for a lower fee because he really believed in the project but also with equity and he gave you know got him to have skin in the game with us so he agreed to do it so he agreed to do it which was absolutely amazing and they at the time target was working with philippe stark and we knew they had an interest in working with Karim. and so what we did was working with Karim, we were able to use kind of Karim as the carrot to get a meeting with Target Marketing, who then invited the buying team. We did a big dog and pony show with Karim, kind of spent pretty much our last dollars. Yeah, we kind of went all in on this, yeah. And ultimately, none of this company would have ever went on to exist if it weren't for the risk we took on our dish soap. And Adam pulled miracles to get the first prototype of the dish soap it arrived moments before the presentation. The actual soap. Yes. Yeah, soap in the bottle. Yep. And the, what was unique about this product that Karam had designed is that it was upside down. So the dish soap came out of the bottom. It was on this inside that everybody, you know, you always turn it over. Right. It's a weird experience. So kind of shot out of the bottom, this beautiful sort of sculptural shape. Now, I, this is an important detail. I was not actually at the meeting because, as Eric mentioned, to the literally the very last moment, we were putting together the product. I was in the factory doing that 24-7 for weeks in preparation for this meeting. So I was like sleeping on the factory floor and doing that whole thing. And then I FedExed this thing first overnight to Eric for the pitch. This is like a make-or-break meeting. Oh, it was. I mean, I was starting to work on my business school applications just as backup because – Oh, like, really? Yeah, I mean, you knew that if we could not get a national retailer behind it, the economics weren't going to make sense. I mean, we're competing against people who, you know, they own their own plants. They've had 150 years to figure out efficiency. And we were charging initially like $5 a bottle. We had to keep bringing the price down to make it more competitive. So you were losing money on every bottle you were selling. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. Early on. So we needed scale and we needed it fast. So so what happened at that meeting? Uh, They said, we'll do a test. Marketing stood up at the end and said, this is right for our guests. It's, you know, designed forward on trend. And so Target gave us a 90-store test to basically prove ourselves out. To sell dish soap and, and surface cleaners. And surface cleaners. And do you remember how, how many units they bought? Oh, they bought um, 
initially about um, twenty five thousand. That's a lot of. That's a lot of. Soap. Oh, it was. Yeah. yeah. Did you, were you like jumping up and down? Did you call Adam and say, we made it. We're in Target. Not really, because we knew if we failed that test, we were out of business. It was make or break. There, there was, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> that, there, was, when a, I got there was a triumphant like, yeah, we've got this test, which was great. But I mean, I remember that moment vividly because my heart sank because... You know, I had to then make sure that we could get 25,000 units made with perfect quality and all of this. <laughs> and how long? How many days? It was only about eight weeks. Um, and that includes things like long lead times for making bottles and, you know, all this type of stuff that it never should have been able to be done in eight weeks. Um, I still, to this day, don't exactly know how we got it done. But we, you know, there's a theme that always ran through our business that when you hit a roadblock, you know, you get out the paperclip and the chewing gum and the rubber band and you figure out another way around and you know making 25,000 units was just another sort of MacGyver moment you know if you're going to build a business any business it's hard and you've got to be incredibly resourceful and for us that was very real because it was born from all of these times where we went the path you were supposed to go and a door got slammed in our face and we had to figure out another way. So mid-2002, you are in 90 Target stores, and you've got to hit a certain target for them to expand out further. Yeah. How did you do that? How did you create awareness around the product? Well, well we didn't hit that target, as it turns yeah. out. <laughs> the first, yeah. first thing we did was there was a set date. And so we had to make sure we got on shelf as fast as possible. So we started driving store to store, go in. If it's not set up, you go to the back room, you pull it out yourself, you take whatever's on shelf off, and you get your product on shelf quickly. But we started, you know, first week looking at the numbers, we're missing the number. And then we had a problem, which was the dish soap that we did, which was the first ever inverted dispenser. So it comes out of the bottom. Yeah, I remember that. Consumers would go to smell it because the fragrances were really unique at the time. And they would pull off the bottom in a way it wasn't supposed to really come off. So it meant it didn't really go back on. And thinking we were great merchants, we put that on the top shelf. So we would walk into stores and there's just dish soap raining down our entire display. That's horrifying. It's hard to sell a product when it's covered in dish soap. Yeah. (laughs) And it's really hard to clean up dish soap in the aisle of a store. But how were you – I mean you had to hit this target and you you didn't. So what happened? Why did Target keep keep carrying it? Ultimately, it was while we weren't hitting the number of units of sell-through that they gave us for a well-known brand on promotion and all of that, we were doing reasonably well. And fortunately, um, a buyer at Target realized that it wasn't just the number of units that we were selling, but the type of people that were buying our products and the other types of products that they were buying in the store. Who were they? You know, they were they were people that were sort of the millennial equivalents of the day, right? They were young. They were more dynamic, more slightly more urban, um, a higher-end audience. These are exactly the types of shoppers, uh, Target calls them guests, um, that they wanted to get in their store. They knew that that was a highly valuable shopper for them. I think that's the paradigm we really broke. And I guess we'll take credit for it because we haven't found anybody who did it before us, but eco-chic. And traditionally – Green products didn't look beautiful, and beautiful products weren't necessarily green. And I think a lot of it is 
just coming down to our own dumb luck of Adam's passion for sustainability, mine for design. That's why Target made so much sense because we Mm. just needed that bigger platform to drive change. So after Target, at that point, did it become easier to get into other big box stores and other retailers? Yeah, I wouldn't call it easy, but what I would say is every next retailer, every next financing round gets incrementally easier. And that's really, that's momentum, right? If you build, it really at the end of the day, I believe that business is about starting with a really small, that's a small success and building into a slightly larger one. And if you do that a couple of times, whether it's going from direct store delivery at Molly Stones to some regional grocers to a test at Target, you only have to do that a number of times and you can build a pretty big business. It's, it's not easy, but the more you do it, it gets easier to get bigger and bigger wins. It's interesting that you started really with Target because we've had John Mackey on the show and we've had other products that really started out at Whole Foods that were non-toxic and environmentally friendly and organic and so on. Um, I read that actually you had a hard time getting into Whole Foods at at the beginning. Is that true? Yeah, they, I mean, you know, oddly, they didn't like that we were already in a mainstream retailer. Um, and we were just very upfront that said, listen, we think that we've got a product that your shopper is really going to enjoy. We just didn't look like a green product. We didn't, we didn't wear the uniform of, of green. We wanted to change that because we, those weren't the people we wanted. We wanted people to buy our product who would never consider buying a green product. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's important to note here. Like, I think it's totally pointless to make a green product for green people, right? The only about 5% of products in the, in the U S market that are sold are green products. And so if all you're doing is preaching to the converted and the 5%, like, what are you doing? We want to create a product that that appeals to everyone, right? And not just people that are only going to shop on their environmental credentials. Um, I I read at one point, Eric, that to prove that this really was non-toxic, you actually drank it. Like you drank, what, what did you, did you, what did you drink? Which one did you drink? So I was in London and you know, I love the British press. They're so skeptical. And I was talking about our products that they're, you know, non-toxic and, and safe. And she said, is it, you know, safe enough to drink? I was like, mm, sure. And it was a toilet bowl cleaner. Mm. And uh, so we both took a shot at the toilet bowl cleaner. And then I immediately uh, text Adam. It was still, you know, he was still sleeping here. And finally he got back to me. I was like, hey, <laughs> just drink the toilet bowl cleaner. I'm going to be okay, right? <laughs> He writes back, well, it wouldn't have been my first choice. <laughs> like, thank you, Captain Obvious. We, we've both had to, to drink. I, I ended up on Japanese television a number of times drinking a lot of methods. So I'm, wow. I'm still here. So how quickly, when did you actually become profitable? When, when, when did? It was about five years in. I so think 2005, we became profitable. So this is after you're in Targets all over the country, and it still takes a some time before you turn a profit. And that's actually relatively fast for a consumer products business to go from nothing to profitable in about five years, pretty quick. How much money did you have to raise before you could stop raising money and just fund the it's company? About $25 million. $25 million. We, we felt we had to grow fast, um, both to keep startup competitors away, but also all the legacy brands were starting to copy us. I'm sure, right? Because you guys had this, people were like, oh, I love this product, right? They did try to crush us. And there were a number of brands that were launched by large CPG. Like Clorox and... All of those guys. 
But what was interesting is it was so funny, and, and Eric predicted this um, to his credit. He predicted that they wouldn't be able to get it right. And what they launched, you know, invariably was sort of the same old like pistol grip bottle with the finger grooves in it that happens to run down their lines already with like yeah. a different label on it and then they slap a flower on it with some sort of like name. It just was like, come on, you know, and, and they did throw a lot of money at that stuff. Believe me, it was really scary for us. Did it cut into your Absolutely. Your in the short term, it did. But because, you know, they weren't authentic products, they weren't interesting products. They were just sort of, you know, people would try them once and they got promoted so they'd, they'd capture shoppers that way. But then the, just the product didn't perform. These are like and Procter it wasn't, and Gamble, like the big companies. All of them, all did, of them. did some version of it. So – I guess around 2008, you decide to branch out into personal care products. So what was the name of the, the label? Block. And you say that in a very <laughs> matter-of-fact way. This was uh, shower gel and hair shampoo and stuff like that? The original idea was actually this really kind of beautiful organic shape, but it didn't stand up. Shape of bottle? Yeah, almost imagine like a seed. But we wanted to still keep that kind of object approach, and we ended up with square. And then it's like a plane crash. It's not one thing that goes wrong. It's like 10 things that go wrong. And so that's what, exactly what that we did there. Uh, from kind of walking away from our core vision of it to not getting the tooling right. And one of it is we were always a little bit more conservative of, you know, we believed in fail fast, right? So you get products out there, limited number of retailers, make sure it works, adjust, launch and learn. And everybody loved the design of it, so we went really broad. Everyone said, this is going to, everyone's going to have this in their bathtub, in their shower. Costco loved it. Grocery, everybody got behind it. And it essentially was nailed to the shelf and did not move. And it's expensive to launch a new product. It's really expensive to discontinue. (laughs) Because when you see something on shelf that's being discounted for the store to get rid of it, the manufacturer is funding it. Oh, man. (laughs) Were you so you just got rid of all this stuff? Like what? Ha, what happened to the excess stuff inventory? <laughs> we, we are, I mean, we up. ended up actually just recycling a whole bunch of bottles that. Do you still have never in your garage? Sold. Like, do you oh, still yeah. use it? Do you yeah, still, still use still it? Again? Some. <laughs> I mean, it's a great product. Still we did some. hear some of it was sold to prisons. Wow. So, um, how big of a hit did you guys take on that? Did, did Method take? You know, I don't remember exactly in dollar terms, but it was you know it was in the low millions of, you know, an investment that basically an amount of money we lit on fire. But the bigger thing, though, is just product failure is a reputational risk, um, and it's something that you need to recover from. The customers, meaning for us a customer was a retailer, yeah, they they were not excited about that, and, you know, something that you have to dig yourself out of. So I'm curious, because at this point you've you've had, obviously had lots of success with, with method cleaning products, right? The company is profitable. And then you have this failure with Block, right? Yep. And I mean, was there was there any tension between the the two of you around that? Like, h- how was your relationship going? It was well, like a marriage. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it is like a marriage. I mean, I think um, Eric and I are super good friends. Um, you know, we obviously know each other incredibly well because we've been in the trenches together. Um, there was a time for a couple of years where we were at each other's throats. Why? You know, Eric and I approach problems from very different angles. 
And that is a huge asset, but it also can be a huge rub when, you know, I see a problem from this direction and you see the problem from another direction and you can butt heads about that. And, you know, that what it requires is it requires a lot of open-mindedness. It requires a lot of self-awareness. It requires a lot of listening. These are all skills that I'd say that we've learned. Yeah. Um, but early on, you know, I don't know a lot of 25-year-olds that have that level of sort of experience and maturity to have those skills. Well, uh, we I, mean, I mean, many, many partnerships break down. It's unusual for partners to create a company to scale it and then to stay friends after, you know, and, and good friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did you guys get through that, those tense times? Well, I think we just, over time, you know, we knew how to be friends, but we didn't know how to be colleagues and partners together. Huh. And we started to learn each other's different styles professionally. My instincts is to just engage and run at it. Adam needs a little bit more space to kind of think it through. He's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. Yeah. And we really learned each other's working styles, and we were able to find a better rhythm together. And And I mean, it was a very, very conscious effort to say, like, screech on the record, like, we got to work on this, right? Or this is going to end badly. I mean, at the end of the day, it was mostly about us doing it individually and working with one another to figure out, you know, when Eric says X, Y, Z, and I feel like it means this. Actually, that's not what he means. He means something else, and I can separate the two. You guys sold this company method to Ecover in 2013. Why did you decide to do that? You built this from the ground up. Was it a point where you kind of had had to do this, had to sell it? Yeah, I mean, we were approached by a private family out of the UK, and they had owned the uh, Ecover brand, which was really the pioneers from the 70s of, of green cleaning. And so the pitch to us was it was an opportunity to really allow all of our investors who've been in it for a long time to see a nice return. Mm. We're big believers that you you build businesses sort of for posterity to endure. And businesses change ownership. And so the question isn't, will it? It's, if it does, will the business be better afterwards? And in this case of selling the business um, to Ecover, actually the greatest example of that is we were able to build what's probably the most sustainable manufacturing facility in the whole world Hmm. um, in the inner city of Chicago immediately after we sold the business. So there was an example of like deepening and enhancing the mission and building something that helped us grow the business much better rather than what other people fear would happen. So you both of you moved on around two, 2015? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're still still involved with the company at a light touch. But you have no ownership at all anymore of our method. No. That's correct. So I ask uh, this question to pretty much everyone who comes on the show. Um, I'll just start with you, Adam. How much of the success of method do you think has to do with, you know, your intelligence and your skill and and how much with luck? Well, I think there's other factors other than just those two. I think that it certainly isn't all because of me. I'd like to think that I contributed an amount to a group of people working together to create something really awesome. Um, I think perseverance was a huge, huge key to the quote-unquote luck that method had. And yeah, you know, was there 20% luck in there? Absolutely. Eric, what what do you think? 
I always say an entrepreneur can never have an ego because luck is always a factor. And I agree with that. And with enough persistence, luck always luck always shows up. Yeah, I mean, we made so many stupid mistakes and kind of had near-death moments that luckily the ball just bounced the right way to keep us alive. Is it strange to go into a Target or a Whole Foods and see this bottle you designed, this soap you designed, this thing that you were making in a San Francisco group house, call it whatever you want, and it's not yours anymore? <laughs> it's it still is, ours. But it's still the ours. emotional attachment, and every time I see, you, know, you walk into a random restaurant bathroom, and there's our, our teardrop hand wash sitting there, and you see it, and you can think of like the stories and the creation of it. And it the, it's so much a part of our identity. Like Whether or not we own a couple of shares or not has nothing to do with it. It's still ours. That's Adam Lowry and Eric Ryan, the two co-founders of Method. By the way, since selling the company, each of them has launched their own new ventures. Adam founded a company called Ripple Foods, which makes plant milk and other dairy-free products from vegetable proteins. And Eric has launched two companies, Ollie, which sells nutritional supplements, and Welly, which sells first aid kits. And in an interview last year, Eric said the idea behind Welly is simple. An injury is actually the trophy of a well-lived life. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write to us at hibt at npr.org. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, it's at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Candace Lim, Derek Gales, J.C. Howard, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Farah Safari. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. Billie Holiday helped shape American music with her voice and unique style. But her legacy extends way beyond music, with one song in particular. How Strange Fruit became an unexpected hit and brought on serious consequences for Billie Holiday. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I'm here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me? On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR.